There you go, Phoebe. Now you can whoop whoop. <laughs> cool. Okay, let's crack on. So, uh, how exciting. We're now on the last session of the Theology of the Gospels, I hope. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm, I'll take that as a sign that you've enjoyed it. I've really enjoyed it. Um, so, no, that's, that's great. Thank you. But, uh, yeah, so we've, after tonight, gone through all of them. And I hope it's, I suppose the aim of what we've been doing the last few weeks has been less about kind of getting into the nitty-gritty of the go- each gospel themselves. You know, we could have spent seven weeks in Luke or seven weeks in you know, Matthew or whatever. Um, but it's more about giving you a framework to then go away and read the gospels and, and find them easier to engage with and what to do with once you're there. So I hope that's been helpful in that, in that regard. But uh, John's Gospel, I'm quite excited for tonight because I think it stands out quite significantly as a gospel. And so the first kind of thing I'd love us to do, I mean, I gave a challenge to anyone who was here last time, in between this time and last time, to just read through all the Gospel of John. So I'd be really keen to kind of hear, uh, well, chat in your groups about um, and even if you didn't do it, you've probably, you may have probably read John before. So what strikes you about John? What comes, yeah, what, what really draws out? So we'll go to a quarter past, so that's eight minutes. Um, yeah, have a little natter. So, yeah, I mean, when Val said, I said I'll join the club, because I remember well, the first week we did this, everyone was kind of saying, oh, I really like Luke. And I remember thinking, like, what about John? Like, John's, John's incredible. Um, I mean, one of the things, a couple of things I think to note as we come to John is John is by far kind of the most poetic. Um, It kind of, as as has been drawn out as already, kind of just flows everything together. And we'll talk a little bit more about this, but sometimes it's hard to see where Jesus' conversation ends and John's kind of um, commentary begins. Uh, So it's very poetic. It's very symbolic. Out of all the Gospels, I think he uses symbols the most. I mean, in all of the Gospels, You've got to pay attention to where things are and kind of what the situation is. But I think in John particularly, if John says, for instance, oh, this was at a Passover festival, you've got to think, ah, this is going to be something significant about Passover or, or, you know, wherever it is. Um, He uses those those things really well. And I suppose, ironically, John is kind of the simplest. If you wanted to kind of learn Greek, John is the simplest book to read in Greek. It's often the first thing that students will will learn, whereas Luke is very kind of complex, kind of classical Greek style. Uh, John has this amazing ability to draw these really profound theological truths in the most simple grammar. So it's, uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful book. So, yeah, so let's, let's jump into it a little bit. So I think at the first thing, it's important to just kind of talk a little bit about John and, and kind of the unique role he has, because this is a very different gospel from all the others. I mean, the fact that we have this phrase, the synoptic gospels, to put Matthew, Mark, and Luke in a category and say these guys are very similar, by doing that, we're saying that John sticks out like a sore thumb. And we talked a little bit about this in the first one, but we can think about some reasons why. I mean, for instance, he's the last one to write a gospel, so he knows what's already out there. He's also going to be facing different issues. Bear in mind, Mark's written in the 40s. The debates and the arguments being had in the church in the 40s were solved by the 60s. And new debates and new arguments are being had. And so John can draw on the conversations with Jesus that were had that didn't get drawn on earlier before. As John says at the end, 
if everything that Jesus said and did was written down, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to contain them. So he can kind of draw on the things which are necessary for where he's at. And you can see this in places like, for instance, where you expect the Last Supper. In all the other Gospels, you get this long extended bit. John basically just says, after they had eaten supper. The assumption is, we know that bit of the story. Now let me tell you what else happened in that room. The, th- the thing about John being the disciple whom Jesus loved, I think has some interesting connotations. Um, so one of the things is, so uh, uh, to point out, if you didn't already know, John identifies himself this way multiple times in the gospel. He's the disciple whom Jesus loved. It says something that he's writing as an author who really, really loves the subject of his writing. He's got this really intimate, profound love for this Jesus, and he's not just writing stories down. It's not to say that Matthew, Mark, and Luke didn't, but I think for John it's so personal. I mean, one of the ways you see this is later on when John comes to write his letters, so First John, Second John, and Third John, so much of what's in his Gospels comes out in his letters, and I think he's just kind of like thinking about, you know, what did Jesus say? And he, he's kind of the WWJD in the first century. He's so kind of impacted by it. The second thing that's interesting is John has called this after he lays in the side of Jesus. Now, if you think about John 1, it says that Jesus, the Son, is in the bosom of the Father, and he has come and made him known. Because Jesus is in this kind of position as being the one in the bosom of the Father, he has this uh, duty, and he is kind of uniquely able to exegete the Father. That's the word used. He has made him known. He has explained him. I mean symbolism, so take it with a pinch of salt, but John also is now coming as the one who is in the bosom of Jesus, so has this kind of unique ability to explain and exegete him uh, to kind of make him known. Now, as I said, it's not a one-to-one parallelism, but John uses symbolism like that all the time, so I think we have to uh, see what he's doing. So, for instance, a good example, John 3 ends with a discussion about John the Baptist being the bridegroom, uh, about being the best man rejoicing at the voice of the bridegroom being Jesus. He then immediately moved to a story with Jesus at a well meeting a woman. Every other time in the Bible where there's a man at a well who meets a woman, it's a wedding scene. So I'm not saying that Jesus married the woman at the well, but there's symbolism there that's supposed to evoke that. So we have to kind of see what John is doing with the symbolism. So in the same way, I think by presenting himself as the one in the bosom of the Father, he's kind of saying, I've got something to tell him that, about him that I just don't think others could get across. Which is why I think you do get places where you can't quite tell who's talking, Jesus or John. So, I mean, classic example, John 3.16. Um, have you got red letters? Has anyone got red letters in their Bible for the words of Jesus? If, if you do, open it up to John 3 and tell me where the red letters stop. I'm keen to do a, a straw poll. Well, not straw poll, but you know what I mean. Th- that's all, it's all red down to there. Yeah, so that's interesting. So did everyone here in, in Jenny's Bible, that's all Jesus speaking. Some Bibles, it will stop at verse 15. Uh, yeah, uh, and the debate is, did Jesus say John 3.16 and onwards, or did John? And I think it's ambiguous on purpose, because John is kind of explaining, uh, it could be that John is explaining what Jesus has, has said, or, or the Jesus saying. And I don't think we're necessarily supposed to know because this is just coming from John. So it's really, uh, really interesting the way that those things kind of um, come out. 
Uh, there was one other thing I was going to say. Oh, yeah, uh, John also stands out from the other Gospels for a number of reasons. Uh, we mentioned the lack of parables. Here's an interesting one. The first thing that Jesus says at the beginning of his ministry in all the three Gospels, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And that comes out loads of other times. In, the word, in, the, in the John's Gospel, the word repent never appears. Repent and repentance doesn't appear. What do we do with that? I don't know. Uh, that seems like the, what's called the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus stands on the Mount of Olives and um, proclaims a judgment oracle on the temple. It's a big part in all the other Gospels. doesn't appear in John. So there's, there's some really big differences, but then there's other things that do appear. So John has lots of personal interviews, like the woman at the well, uh, Nicodemus at night. It has lots of public debates between him and the Pharisees. And it has lots of intimate conversations with him and his disciples, which and they, none of them just, uh, they don't have any kind of parallel in the other Gospels. So really interesting what John thinks is necessary to bring in and what's not. So um, it's, a, it's a fantastic Gospel. I mean, I, I love John. I think it's just such a profound, beautiful piece of writing. So I've just let's just jump in on this. So in terms of the structure of John, it kind of moves around two halves. I think, I think we talked about this in the first part as well, first, um, first session. But John, kind of interestingly, kind of has these two halves where one covers a period of three and a half years. And the other half, from chapter 13 to 21, cover a potentially a week maximum, maybe five days. And it's, it's strange, isn't it? Because when you kind of have a history book, let's say you have a history book chronicling 50 years, you'd expect halfway to be around 25, 26 years in. Whereas if, if you kind of got to halfway through the book and you were 49 and a half years through and then the, the, res, the rest of the book was six months, it'd be a bit strange. It must have been a really significant six months. So same kind of thing in John. Uh, it moves around these two halves. And the two halves are very different. It's very public in the first half. He's dealing with the Pharisees. He's uh, meeting people where they are. Second half, except for the crucifixion and the, the arrest scene, pretty much all of it is in the upper room with his disciples, just talking with them. So it's a much more intimate, um, private part of Jesus' ministry, and yet it takes up the same amount of space. So it kind of moves in these two halves. Now, the, the first half, scholars tend to call it the Book of Signs, and we'll talk about that in a minute, because it has these seven signs as the main theme by, as the story moves. And the second half tends to get called the Book of Glory, because it's kind of the book where Jesus shows what glory looks like. And we'll talk about more of those halves more um, in a moment. But it's important to say, uh, John's gospel kind of moves through these the groups of seven. So if you don't already know that um, seven is a very significant number in Jewish thinking, it's the number of kind of completeness and perfection. So it's used a lot. We didn't actually talk about it, but in Matthew's genealogy, for instance, he splits it down. So you've got six groups of seven, and then Jesus is the seventh seven. So it's, it's used in other Gospels as well. But So here in John, we've got the seven signs. That's in that first half, the book of signs. And you've also got these seven I am statements where Jesus says, I am da 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 I am da 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 So I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the sheep gate. I'm the good shepherd. So, and, and I'd say that each of these, the signs and the I am statements, they are kind of the vehicle by which John moves the narrative along. And, and we'll talk about these more, and you know, I want to kind of go through them and spend a bit of time in them. But first, let's just look at the overall structure of John. We kind of talked about this a little bit, but you have this prologue, 
where John kind of does an intro, talks about a bit who Jesus is, what he's come to do, just kind of sets the scene. And the, the main message in that is Jesus is the eternal word who has become flesh. And, and as I say, we'll look at the intro a little bit in a second. And the second big thing is through him we can come back to God. I didn't put it in there, but the kind of third point that the prologue gets it at is, and plenty have been offered and have rejected. So the prologue, this big, a big part of it is, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. But for anyone who does receive him, he gives them the right to be children of God. So that, that's kind of a big part. Through him, we can come back to God because he is from God. And then you kind of have the main bulk, which is part one, the book of signs, as we talked about. As I say, we'll talk about the, the signs in a moment. But the main message that you get in this half is Jesus is fulfilling the hope of Israel. I mean, this is an important point in John's gospel. When Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, he tells her salvation is from the Jews. So the point that John makes in, in plenty of ways, and some are really clever, like when he quotes the high priest later on in the, in the book, the point he makes is not all the Jews are going to receive salvation. Not, most of them, many of them are going to reject it, and you don't have to be Jewish to, to get it. But if you're going to come to God... You're not just coming to Zeus or Apollo or the God of your choosing. You're coming to the God of Israel. Fundamentally, it's the God of Israel that's inviting you in. And so salvation has come from the Jews. Um, we might like to have um, a different God. We might like to come to a different God, but the, that option isn't given. Um, the God who is is the one who's come, and, and he's come to fulfill the story of Israel so that all may come in. Uh, the second big theme, and, uh, and again, as I say, we'll talk about this more, but the book of signs really gets this across. Jesus is the sovereign, not just kind of he deserves to be honored as king. He is king over all things and can work the world to his will. So that, again, we'll look at some ways that comes out, but it's a big theme in this first half. And mentioned it earlier in the prologue, but again, big theme, his own will not receive him. There's a lot of rejection in that first half. Book of Glory, that second half, the main message is true glory is shown in humility and suffering. The very first story in the Book of Glory, Jesus getting on his knees and washing the dust off his disciples' feet. I mean, it's such a profound story, that, isn't it? And I, I love the, you, you've got to love Peter. I mean, just imagine being friends with Peter. No, 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 Lord, you can't wash my feet, Peter. If I don't wash your feet, you have no life in me. Well, if that's the case, then wash my whole body. You know, go from the head down. It's like, I just need to do your feet. He's, he's, he's so kind of two ends of the poles all the time. Um, but nonetheless, it's, it's a really kind of profound story, I think. And uh, yeah, that, that whole notion that the master shows, who, shows his leadership, shows that he's the master by getting on his knees and serving those below him. That's really profound. Um, and another big theme that comes through is Jesus isn't just happy to have a people. He's not going, great, some people have received me, you know, good for them. And Val kind of mentioned this earlier, the intimacy you see of Jesus in, in John it shows that he actually really deeply cares for his people. That The prayer in John 17, one of the most incredible um, prayers in the Bible, I think, where Jesus prays for his people. And he just talks about the love that him and the Father have shared together and how that love is going to be shared with them. And how he prays, not just for these disciples, but for all who will come in. There's this, you know, so as you're reading John 17, just bear in mind that when Jesus says, not just for them, but for all who come in, he's praying and has prayed, therefore, for you. 
so profound. And another big th- part of it is the Holy Spirit is on the way. It's a big thing in the second half of the book. I will not leave you as orphans. That The comforter is coming. The Father sent me, and I'm going back to the Father, but me and the Father will send the Spirit. And then after the book of glory, where glory is shown ultimately through his death and resurrection, uh, the story seems to end. As you get to chapter 20, you know, he commissions them, and uh, it says, you know, it's all, it's all good. And then, actually, no, sorry, the commissions are in the, in the epilogue, but it, it's, it kind of says there's a natural ending. John kind of says, you know, um, many things have been written kind of signs off and then you get this epilogue and suddenly it's kind of not over and they're, they're fishing you know it's the miracle that we've already seen in uh, the beginning of the gospel of, of Luke where the, the multiplied fish that are caught and there's a wonderful contrast here now again just bear in mind John's read the gospel of Luke so he knows that this, this half of the story we think oh, I'm gonna, I can't wait for people to hear the second half because the first time Jesus did this miracle, Peter says, away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. The second time, after he's resurrected, after the disciples have come to know who this Jesus is, Peter gets out of the boat and swims to shore and just throws his arm around Jesus. You know, it's, it's the Lord. And I think there's this incredible image there of they've spent time with Jesus and they've come to know who he is and he is worth jumping out of the boat, getting soaking wet for and giving a big hug. So there's this wonderful end to this story, and it just ties up a few loose ends. Peter, the last time we saw Peter, he was rejecting Jesus, and now he's being restored back to ministry. Uh, there's also a rumor that John deals with where it was, it was rumored that um, Jesus had said to Peter that uh, he wouldn't die. And John says, no, no, that's not what the Lord says. Let me tell you what he actually said. So it just ties up a few loose ends in there, really. So yeah, that's kind of the overall structure. So let's just spend a bit of time working through that. So... The intro, I mean, this intro is just so profound. Let's just read it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I mean, the, what a way to just open up a story, right? So Mark just kind of jumps straight in. Jesus is on the scene in his ministry. Luke starts off with Elizabeth and Zechariah, you know, goes back a bit further. Matthew comes back a little bit uh, closer than Luke and starts with uh, Mary and Joseph. John just goes, oh, let's go before Genesis. You know, let's go before creation. That's, that's what we need to ground this story in. So... That in the beginning, clearly a callback to Genesis, exactly the same grammatical structure. So he's, he's clearly trying to take us back to Genesis. And I hope, I hope this doesn't get too complicated. So we do the same thing in English. We have a, a kind of a verb form and a noun form of something. So um, oh, suddenly I can't think of any examples. Um, if I think of one, I'll say. But the, the verb form of the word to speak, so in the beginning, God said, as it says in Genesis 1, John uses the noun form of that verb for the word. Does that kind of make sense? So that the speaking of God is now represented from Genesis in John as the word. So we know that the word was in Genesis 1 because it says in, in Genesis that 
God spoke, so there must have been a word. But what John then does is he kind of personalizes it. And he says, in the beginning was the word, well, we know that, and the word was with God. So this isn't just kind of some impersonal force. This isn't just a noise. This is someone. And the word was God. I mean, that's just, this is why we have the doctrine of the Trinity. This is the only way that you can kind of make sense of it. If he's with God, then he's somehow distinct. But he is God. It's really, it's really interesting the way that John, at the very beginning, the first thing he wants us to know about this Jesus, before he's even called Jesus, is about his divinity and his deity and the fact that he's with God, that he's the operation through which creation happened. So kind of really setting the scene for who this Jesus character is. After this, a few verses down, he then says, uh, he came to his own, his own did not receive him. To all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. I mean, just how profound is that? That word I was talking about earlier, that one that was there at creation, the creative force by which this world came to be in, he became flesh. He became a person. Jesus existed before he was called Jesus. And it's... You might have heard before, it's quite commonly said in sermons, but that, that phrase, he made his dwelling among us, that's the verb form of, of the tabernacle. He tabernacled among us. He's been the temple among us. So this is kind of what John thinks is really important to get across before we can kind of come to who this Jesus is. Uh, that, that kind of divinity and, and that Genesis, going back to the story, you know, Genesis really begins the story of Israel. So John is saying, well, Jesus is the story of Israel. You can't really go any further than that. Now, that right to become children of God, how precious is that? And, and that comes up time and time again in John's writings. If you've become a Christian, you've not just joined a club. You've become a child of God. And then this is a really interesting thing because it's, you know, to all who did receive him, it makes it sound like it's their choice. You know, you've made the right choice. But then it says this, not of natural descent. You're not just born a Christian. It's not just like if you're part of Israel, then you're saved but nor of a human decision. So you might think that you chose this for yourself, but actually God was working this for you. Nor a husband's will, so sometimes children are born by the will of a husband, but these children are born of God. This is God has done the working to make those who are children of God, children of God. Incredible stuff. And that kind of sovereignty, that power of God over all things, is, again, comes up time and time again in John. So let's look at these seven signs and seven I am's. So the seven uh, signs, now this is, as I say, this is the first kind of half of John. First thing he does, classic story, wedding in Cana, turns the water to wine. Isn't that, isn't that a great story? Who loves that story? I love that story. It tells you something about Jesus though, doesn't it? You know, he goes to a party is he there, you know, looking at people, oh, look at these guys drinking all the wine. <laughs> you know, he's, he's not the kind of um, austere Christian that you might have in your mind. Instead, he's going, right, this wine's not very good. Let's see what I can do, you know. <laughs> and there's far more than they could possibly drink. I mean, I think that's got to say something about our, 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 our worldview, surely. But yeah, he does this sign and uh, it tells us that he did this to manifest his glory. His glory was shown in doing this. Um, 
Now, it's interesting, there's a few, again, John's very symbolic. Whenever he notices something, he wants everyone else to notice it too. It says that the, what were the, the vessels that he filled up with water? Can anyone remember? For the, for the Jewish ceremonial washing. Think about this symbol. The water that you need to be cleansed, the Messiah has now turned to wine and invites you to drink from it. It's John's kind of really clever way of saying it's not about the ceremonial washings anymore. The water is redundant now. Now is the time for the celebration. The Old Testament prophets talked about the messianic banquet, which is what we preached on the last two weeks at church. This banquet that God is going to hold in, in, the, uh, kind of in the eschaton. And Jesus is saying it's, it's started. It's begun. The wine's here. No more ceremonial washing. So he manifests his glory in that. He then, uh, soon after that, is a story of him healing the uh, the son of an official, of a nobleman. And again, it says that he made this to be his second sign and his glory was manifested there. Then he goes down to the pool of Bethesda. There's a man there who wants to be healed. And Jesus kind of says, the wait's over. You, know, you don't need to wait on someone else to, to get you in the pool now. I'm just going to heal you. Again, it's all about this kind of, this, the time of celebration has become. The Sabbath of Sabbaths is here, the time for healing. Feeding the 5,000. Now, feeding the 5,000 in John is this massive discourse, this massive long speech about the need not just for bread, but for true bread, for the bread of heaven, for the bread that's actually going to satisfy you. Um, it has some really interesting things about coming to Jesus. I mean, there's this, I love that it tells you something about Jesus' view of kind of um, church growth. Uh, thousands of people there, and they're all kind of leaving in their droves. And uh, because Jesus said, oh, you have to eat my, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they're kind of saying, explain this. No, I'm not going to explain this. You kind of, Jesus, if Jesus wanted to just come and get numbers, he wouldn't do what he does in John 6. And then there's the walking on the water, the healing of the man born blind, and that takes up, I mean, it's funny, the healing is only 12 verses. The Pharisees dealing with the healing and trying to get Jesus in trouble takes up two chapters. Love that. And then lastly, Lazarus is raised, the kind of that big uh, resurrection thing. Now, as I say, those stories all take it forward. It, it says in each of those that Jesus manifests his glory. There's something about him seen more. Uh, some part of who he is or his personality is shown. And they, they often go side by side with the I am statements. Now, could someone tell me, why would a phrase like I am be so uh, important in the Bible? Yahweh, Exodus 3, 4, 3? It's 3, right? Exodus 3, Moses says, who are you? You know, you know what, sh what name shall I say? And God says, I am. That's, that's his name. He is the one who just is. And... Yeah, I mean, it's true to say that it is just good grammar to say, I am the bread of life, you know, I am the light of the world. But at the same time, it seems to be a bit more pointed than that. Jesus is kind of taking on that identity and, and showing more about it. So the, the bread of life thing, that's, that's big. The manna that fell from heaven, this is a distinctive part of the identity of Israel as they were in the desert. You know, the manna stayed in the Ark of the Covenant with the law. The law is the defining feature of Israel, and the manna sits there with it. So when Jesus comes along and says, I am the bread of heaven. And there's a bit, of a bit of a pun there because the bread of heaven in English sounds very kind of spiritual, but in Greek it just means the bread from the sky. So he is the bread from the sky. He is the, um, the manna. 
He is the light of the world. Now, I want to talk about this one a bit more because there's something I need to draw out in the light of the world saying. So we'll talk about that more a bit more in a second. But he is the sheep gate, and this goes alongside the good shepherd reference. Now, if you read Ezekiel, the complaint in Ezekiel is that leaders of Israel are bad shepherds who only feed themselves. Hey, Andy and Jude. Huh? But uh, so that they have been abusing you and taking you off in the wrong way. And they are uh, mistreating you sheep. You're injured and they're not helping you. Now Jesus comes along and says, not only am I the good shepherd, the one who Ezekiel promised in Ezekiel 34, but I'm also the gate by which the sheep go through. Now we had a cracking sermon on Ezekiel 34, didn't we, Phoebe, at New Day? About the good shepherd and how Jesus takes on that role. Um, Jesus comes and says, I am the resurrection. I mean, that's strange, isn't it? Because the resurrection isn't a person or a thing, it's an event. It's the event that the Jewish people are waiting for, the day of resurrection where they'll be vindicated. And as Jesus comes to, to bring Lazarus back from the dead, he says to Martha, uh, you, you know that he's going to be raised. And she says, well, yeah, you know, the day of resurrection. So, I mean, that's important to know because Martha knows that the day of resurrection is coming. And Jesus' response, I am the resurrection. That day, that event is most clearly seen in me. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, and then, again, another defining feature of Israel is their law. Read Psalm 119. The law is like a way. The, the law is like, um, is, is the truth. Your life is found in the law. All these things are said in the Psalms, and Jesus comes and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am Israel's law. Again, the law isn't a person. It's, it's, it's kind of a concept, and Jesus is saying, it's me. And lastly, he says that he's the vine He's the thing, the, the life principle. If you're attached to him, you'll grow. Okay, I just want to spend a little bit of time. This is a, a small hobby horse, but it, I think it's important. So if you open your Bibles up to John 7, end of John 7. Now, John 7 happens at the Festival of Tabernacles. It will probably say in your Bible, John 7, verse 1, Jesus goes to the Festival of Tabernacles. Festival of Tabernacles is a really significant festival in the Old Testament. It's the festival where they all go in tents to remember that when they were in the desert, they dwelt in tents. And it's a week-long festival. So it's a festival to remind themselves that God dwelt with them. Now, why is that significant in John from what we've already seen so far? Don't all say it at once. Jesus is, the, is God coming to dwell amongst us. So while they're celebrating the past event, the present reality is there among them. But John 7 uh, follows the festival. Now the last day of the Festival of Tabernacles, they would do two very important things. They would light the menorah. And the menorah was the light of the world. It symbolized the, the seven stars, that this is the light of the world. They would also go down to the Pool of Siloam and they would draw up water. Now again, there's a, there's a pun here in Greek because the phrase for flowing water, like a spring in Greek, is living water. Dead water is stagnant water. Flowing water is living water. So they would go down to Siloam and they'd draw up the living water. So these two big events happen on the last day. Now, in chapter 7, Jesus talks about how he is the one who gives living water. So, verse 37, On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, 
Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of flowing water will flow within them. Will flow within them. So, the last and greatest day, they're going down to get the living water and Jesus is saying, come to me and have the, not just the flowing, but the true living water. Okay, the reason I bring this up is, in your Bibles, can you just tell me if there's a break before chapter 8? What does it say? Does it say the earliest manuscripts or anything? Can you, can you read the, the, the whole thing of what it says for the earliest manuscripts? Awesome. So, yes. So the, the point I want to make here is the woman, the story of the woman caught in adultery is a very beloved story. And I'm not necessarily doubting that it, that it really happened. It's just that John probably didn't write it. So originally, the first time we find the woman caught in adultery, it's at, stuck at the end of Luke's gospel. That's the earliest manuscript. And then it's moved a bit further back in Luke's gospel. And then in the 300s, we have it at the end of John's gospel. And then around the 400s, it's settled in this place in John's gospel. Now, the, the, what I'd probably say is, John probably didn't write this. Luke probably didn't write this. It may well have happened. Lots of things which are true historical events weren't written by biblical writers. But I don't think it's probably scripture. And the, other th- the reason I'm, I'm um, going on this is because if you take it out, which I think we should, because I don't think this is how John wrote it, we find that after verse 12, Jesus is still at the last and greatest day of the Festival of Tabernacles. If we include it, then the story afterwards is the next day, because it says in verse 2, at dawn he appeared again. So if we take it out, Jesus has just talked about how if you come to him, you'll have living water. Then he stands up and says, and I am the light of the world. So there he is at the Festival of Tabernacles. You know, you can imagine him pointing at the menorah. Not this, me. And he points at the water that they've drawn out. Not this, me. So, the woman caught in adultery, as I say, we don't need to dwell too much on the story itself, but if we do take it out, then we actually find that this is a, a really kind of symbolic and quite profound uh, way that Jesus takes on that festival and says, this is about me. Now, you're free to, um, I don't know, debate with me, I suppose, or disagree with me, but as, as, as I say, as it currently stands, if, if it were up to me and we were kind of preaching through John, I would go verse 52 to verse 8, 12. I don't think this is original. Um, to John. But um, as I say, I'm only making that point to draw out this uh, thing here. Okay. Uh, okay. We're going to have three minutes. Really three. It's got to be three minutes, unfortunately, because of the time. But the story I want to ask to kind of think about in groups, it, not the story I want to ask, the question I want to ask to think about in groups is this goes a bit broader than just John. But if you had the opportunity for, let's say, 10, 15 minutes to sit down with someone who had never heard the gospel, never heard of Jesus, didn't know anything about Christianity, who was curious, which gospel would you go to? Which, let's say, for the sake of the argument, you have to go to a gospel. 
and where in that gospel. The reason I kind of bring this out is because for me, John is my go-to kind of evangelistic gospel. I just think it gets to the heart of who Jesus is and what's um, on offer. So three minutes, or if, it need, if you need longer than that, I have longer than that. But um, yeah, where would you go? Why would you take them there? Fair um, enough. Yeah, John 3.16. Uh, it's funny because often when kind of things become that kind of popular and known, they almost become a cliche. But John 3.16 is just... You can't read through John 3 and just not be, and I stopped in your tracks by it. It is such a profound um, verse. And the, well, the whole unpacking of it in, in John 3 to the end of the, of the chapter, just what does it mean for God to send his son into the world? Um, yeah, it's, it's amazing. So, yeah, that's great. Thank you. Okay, we'll, we'll go through this really quickly because I don't think it's going to take very long. But I just, there's just two themes in John. There's a lot more I had, which I don't think we're going to have time to talk about, which is fine. But there's two which I think are just so essential. One is the divinity of Jesus. I mean, all the Gospels, in, in ways subtle or not so subtle, present Jesus as God. But for John, it's like, this is the first thing we need to talk about. And we already saw that a little bit with the, with the intro, with the prologue. Uh, and, and later on, at the very end of the book, you have that bit where Thomas, seeing the resurrected Jesus, just says, my Lord and my God. It's funny, because the Jehovah's Witnesses who don't believe that Jesus is God, when you ask them, you know, well, what, why does Thomas say this there? They say, well, he's just blaspheming. You know, he says, oh, oh my Lord and my God. <laughs> really? <laughs> and Jesus is cool with that you know um but uh yeah so jesus there are ways so john does explicitly call jesus god multiple times but there are also more subtle ways that john presents this jesus figure as someone who only israel's god could be so he keeps talking about jesus being eternal in the beginning was the word and the word was with god uh, in john eight fifty eight, there's this bit where the jesus says before abraham was I am. Now, it's terrible grammar, but it's amazing theology. And the Jews, getting what Jesus is saying, pick up stones and try to stone him because they realize he's calling himself God. And then there's um, 17.5 where he talks about, he's praying to the Father and he talks about how him and the Father enjoy this glory and love together before the creation of the world. There was never a time when Jesus was not. Uh, The second way we kind of see this is Jesus is the one who is sovereign and all-powerful. So again, chapter one talks about how he's the one who created all the world. Um, chapter six has some really interesting things. The way that Jesus talks about no one can come to me unless my Father in heaven draws him. All who come to me I will hold and I will raise up on the last day. Now, I put two verse 11 in there. This is an interesting one because you might look at your Bible and think, how on earth does this talk about Jesus' sovereignty? Because it says Jesus did this as the first of his signs. That's a possible translation. But I, and I say this with the backing of one of the greatest Greek scholars alive today, Daniel Wallace, would say that the better translation is, Jesus made this to be the first of his signs. In other words, the situation at the wedding of Cana, Jesus had already decided this is going to be where I'm going to do my first sign. It kind of talks about Jesus' sovereignty over that everything lining up. Them running out of wine, there being these big water jars, Jesus made this to be his first sign. He's the one who kind of set the scene. Um, and lastly, Jesus is the one who has a unique relationship with the Father. Now, as we see in John, we're all invited to have a relationship with the Father. 
So that's not necessarily unique. What is unique is that Jesus is, you know, that the word that gets sometimes it's translated is the only begotten son, or sometimes it's the uh, his one and only son, sometimes it's his unique son, but that the word there used is best translated probably as just his his unique one and only that's a fairly good way of putting it but something about the relationship that Jesus has with the Father that's unparalleled by anyone else he's not just a messenger he's closely intertwined with the identity of the Father Jesus says the Father is greater than I that much we can understand but then he says I and the Father are one so there's this intertwining with who he is having said that the surprising thing might be that equally emphasized in John's gospel is the humanity of Jesus. John is really keen that we read his gospel and come away thinking, this man is God. This man is God. You know, I've just put that verse there, Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the English Bible. But there's so much communicated through there. You know, that the creator of the universe is there with tears in his eyes because he's lost his best friend. Well, not his best friend, but his, his close friend. I mean, just how profound is that? You know, Romans 12, where it says, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. What example, what an example we have in the fact that they knew in about five seconds he was about to resurrect him anyway. Jesus just weeps with his friends. And you just get this really tender, intimate Jesus, the one who gets hungry. The one who created food is hungry. The one who created all things and needs no rest sleeps. The one who is, is in the heavens and isn't served by human hands, as Paul says in Acts 17, has friends who he says, I no longer call you disciples, I call you my friends. And it's, it's like Jesus, uh, John doesn't want us just thinking of Jesus as this kind of God who's way up there and like he's incredible without also knowing, but he's also the God who made his dwelling amongst us and is so here with us and present with us. Those, they're, they're two things which equally really need to be emphasized um, for John, and I think for us as well. Uh, if, we, if we put more balance on one than the other, then theology tends to get messy. You can create a Jesus that's way out there, who's nice but uninterested, or a Jesus who's so down there that really there's nothing he has to offer except a shoulder to cry on. I think we need both. It's funny, isn't it? Because um, uh, I, think it was, I think it was Prince Philip a few years ago kind of talked about, you know, for him, the queen isn't the queen, it's just his wife. There's that sense in which if you were married to the sovereign, you wouldn't really think of them as the sovereign. That's not really an intimate uh, title, is it? But John, the one who loves Jesus and has this intimate relationship, is the one who is most keen to portray him as the one with absolute authority. And he's my friend, and I lay on his side. I mean, I just think that really gets to the profundity of, of John. And around this era, mid-60s, is when you start to get this view known as the, um, the docetic heresy. So it comes from the Greek word, which means to seem. So it was this view that um, he looked like he had a human body, but it, was, it, was just, it just seemed like it. He actually kind of floated on the ground. You know, he, he walked, but there were no footprints. He, he ate food, but it just fell through. There are, these are all things that are kind of passed around. And uh, I think John is saying, nah, I put my head on his chest, and I didn't fall through. 
I ate fish with him on the beach. And it's funny because nowadays the big debate is kind of, you know, what does the Bible show Jesus as God? And, and you, you've, we've had kind of cults who say, no, Jesus isn't God. That's silly. In the first century, that wasn't really the issue. The issue was, yeah, we can believe he's God, but was he a man? And it's no surprise that later on, John writes this book, 1 John 4. Uh, well, he writes 1 John, and in chapter 4, every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus has come in the flesh is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you've heard is coming and even now is already in the world. I won't go on to a whole tangent about the Antichrist uh, as much as I'd love to, but the point there is if you deny, if you're happy to say he's God, wonderful. If you deny he's come in the flesh, no, you're not, you're not speaking God's truth. That's Antichrist. Uh, later on, John's disciple, Polycarp, so John was Jesus' disciple. John then has disciples of his own. And one of them, Polycarp, writes a letter to the Philippians, the same people that Paul wrote to. And, and he quotes John, and he says this. This is about uh, 40 years plus after John wrote. And he says, whoever does not confess that Jesus has come in the flesh is Antichrist. Uh, whoever does not confess the testimony of the cross is of the devil. Whoever perverts the, perverts the oracles of the Lord to his own lusts and says that there is neither a resurrection nor a judgment, he is the firstborn of Satan. So by this period, this, this view that the flesh is unimportant is getting really popular. And so Polycarp, this kind of Johannine community is the phrase tends to be used, that the followers of John, the friends of John, the community of John, they're the ones who are saying, nuh-uh, if there's one thing we learnt from John, it's that he came in the flesh. And so they're really standing firm and holding the line. And as we talked about earlier, go back to the intro, this is essential. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. It's so much more profound if you understand that the one who is truly God became truly man. If he's just a demigod, just an angel, yeah, that's nice that he became a man, but so what? If he's truly God, but he just looked like one of us, what does that offer me that, you know, that, was, that was not on offer before? But if he's both, then something significant has happened. And if he is really the sovereign, the one in control, the powerful one, and yet he's that intimate, kind, loving man that we see in this gospel, then that presents us with a challenge. So I think, as we finish, the big challenge of John's gospel is you have seen the king, the creator of the universe, the sovereign, who is tender, loving, kind, and invites you in. Where else are you going to turn? What seriously else is on offer that can best that? So the big challenge you get in John 6 where Jesus says to his disciples, are you going to go away? Loads of other people have gone and Simon just says, who are we going to go to? You have the words of eternal life. We've believed and come to know that you're the Holy One of God. It's like there is no better one to follow. So I think that the, really, the real challenge of God is to basically present Jesus as who he is, as who John has come to know him to be, and then say, try and one-up that. He's worth following. So I think that's the big challenge of John, which is why I think it's so good evangelistically. So let's just have a quick recap. So we looked at the structure of John's gospel. We looked at the use of the seven I am's and the seven signs in the gospel. We didn't go as in-depth as I maybe would have liked, but that's fine. And we looked at those complementary themes of his divinity and his humanity. They're not, they're not contradictions they're not even kind of tensions they very beautifully sit together 
So there we go. That's not only John, that's all of the Gospels. Um, so I hope you've enjoyed that. And uh, should we just have any questions before we finish? If there are any. No, cool. Well, uh, let's pray then. Lord Jesus, we just pray that we, like John, would come to know that you are high above us, majestic, in control, the sovereign, and yet tender, close, and near to us. Lord, we pray that we would take and receive that invitation to be reconciled to God through you, to be children of God. And Lord, we pray that we would offer that challenge to the world around us. Who better is there to turn to? So Lord, we pray that you would deepen our spiritual lives as we draw near not just to a concept but to a person. And we pray that you would cause us to overflow with the love that is overflowing from you and share that with those around us. That we pray that we would present you as winsomely as John does. Lord, we pray that we would have that personal, intimate relationship with you that he shows. And Lord, we just pray that your gospel would go out across the land and that many would come to know that Jesus is the Holy One of Israel. So in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Awesome stuff. Thanks for coming, guys. See you next time. <laughs>